Hi, welcome to MedTech for Beginners, the place to come if you want to know more about how to bring new health and care innovations into the UK market. Hi, this is Kate Pym. Welcome to today's podcast, MedTech for Beginners. Today I am interviewing Professor Jackie Leach-Scully from the University of New South Wales. Uh, We've been working on a project together, which I know might sound unusual considering she's in Australia and I'm in the UK, but I think that sort of highlights the richness of the environment within which we work and how we bring together people of different expertise and experiences to build a medtech introductory pathway for new products and services. So if I'd just like to hand over to you, uh, Jackie, if you could introduce yourself to the listeners, please. Thank you. Thank you, Kate. I'm very um, pleased to be here. As you said, although I'm normally at the University of New South Wales right at the moment, I happen to be in Manchester, UK. But actually, the wonders of modern technology mean that that makes hardly any difference, except for once we're in the same time zone rather than um, 10 hours apart. As Kate said, I am Professor of Bioethics, in fact, at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. Uh, I actually started my career in the UK and I was initially a biochemist and then a molecular biologist. I moved to Switzerland to take up my first postdoc as a research molecular biologist and I did that for about 10 years before I became more interested in the, let's say, the regulatory side of of things, of of biomedicine, um, and started to explore that area, worked in regulation for for a while, regulatory affairs, um, and then shifted even further as I became interested in why we had certain rules and frameworks uh, about the kind of things that we could do in research and development, you know, where those where those frameworks had actually originally come from. So that took me even further away from bench science into ethics and philosophy, which is the area where I've been working since um, oh, for far too long, actually, um, but probably for about 30 years now. Fantastic. Thank you. And that's quite a comprehensive background for people who are listening and thinking, well, I'm currently a researcher thinking about bringing a product to market. As you can tell from uh, Jackie's explanation of her own background, there are many, many routes to getting to where you want to be. And the same can apply to your technology. So the reason I wanted to speak with Jackie today is that increasingly in fact not even increasingly always whenever you're bringing a product to market um, you are asked about patient and public involvement and engagement at some point along your journey now in a lot of cases people see this possibly as an irritating thing hurdle that they've got to get over in order to get their product to market but there is far far more to it than that about making sure that what you're going to bring to market is something that would be used or adopted by those patients who are going to be benefiting from your technology. So at this point, I'd like to hand over to Jackie so that she can tell you a bit more about why this is not just a hurdle and something that you've got to get through, but why it is actually genuinely important for you as as an innovator, but also for your product that this piece of work is completed. 
Thanks. And perhaps I'd better backtrack a little bit and explain why an ethicist is doing patient and public engagement, because um, many ethicists, bioethicists, medical ethicists um, do work exclusively in kind of abstract domain. Um, they're primarily theoretical or they're primarily policy uh, oriented, probably because of my background as a scientist where, you know, I actually like to have data to work with rather than just thoughts in my head. When I moved into bioethics, I became what we call an empirical bioethicist, which is somebody who takes empirical research. So I go out and do field work of different kinds largely to do with how a new technology, biomedical or otherwise, is either affecting people or might affect people, and then try and work from there to think about what the ethical implications of that might be. So actually work with data rather than try to guess, as it were, ahead of time what the impact might be. And that has meant that I spend a lot of time with patients and public exploring their thoughts and ideas about technology, biomedicine, uh, healthcare, and, and so on in, in various domains. And I think there's a, there's a kind of crossover there between ethics and the involvement of the public, because it's not just practically useful, which I'll come on to in a moment, but it's also an ethical thing to do in the sense that you want to make sure that whatever kit or gadget it is that you're producing and promoting is something that people actually want and that will be useful to them and that you're not ignoring a side effect perhaps of that device that actually is important to those people which may not be obvious. Medical side effects are often pretty obvious but sometimes the impact of a new technology or a new intervention on people's general lives or their thinking isn't obvious and you have to explore that and the best way that I found to do that is to just to talk to and listen to people, um, explore with them in a kind of structured way their thoughts about the future or about their actual experiences with with the technology. And this is important not just for an ethical reason, but, you know, practically um, put very bluntly, if we spend a lot of time producing something and getting it to market, which turns out to be not something that people want to use, you've wasted a lot of time, money, people's energy for an interventional process that will end up gathering dust on a shelf, either physically or, or metaphorically. Yes. And in our experience of working together, I can't discuss the actual project in depth, obviously. But in this particular instance, we're looking at a piece of medical technology where the public won't ever see it. It's just something that's in the background. And you would think, why do you need patient in public involvement and engagement in something which is part of the background technology behind the scenes that they will never see that just informs or takes part in some element of patient treatment um, and yet we're doing work in this area so I know my opinions on this but I would uh, I would really like to hear your opinions as to Firstly, we know that from a funding point of view and an adoption point of view for the NHS, we need to evidence that we've done this. But as I said before, it's not just a hurdle to get over. There's yeah. a reason that we do this, even when on the face of it, you think, why on earth do we need to tell people about a piece of complex technology that they will never see and is just part of? of the background work that is done by clinicians. So over to you, Jackie. <laughs> 
Okay, that is an interesting, quite a tricky question to to answer. It has lots of layers. From an ethicist point of view, a basic response to that would be because it shows respect to the people involved that you are not you're not patronising them in a way or or not being paternalistic. And I think part of that response that you've described has as a background a, a sense of well they're never going to understand it anyway, so why should we bother? So you know that does reflect I think a fairly paternalistic viewpoint. It is a problem, it's something that's complex and subtle and which you know, sometimes even the experts barely understand to try to convey that in lay terms in a way that won't actually um, move beyond the, the, the stage of informing people so that they feel interested and reassured and push towards them actually being frightened off in a sense because something is so complicated. So you have to try to find that very, very difficult balance to inform them enough and gauge how much is enough. I do feel that intrinsically it's important to do that in our engagement with the patients and the public because I think they'll also pick up that we are showing them that kind of respect and, and saying, you know, here is this information so that you can make your own decision. It's not something that we're, we're forcing on you. From a practical point of view, I think there's also a sense that it can come back and bite you if you haven't informed people properly about what what something entails. I, when I was training, as the particular person, I senior person I worked with, whose mantra always was, "It only takes one scandal," to really pull the plug on something that you may have worked on for years. And I think the more people actually understand about the effort that has gone into something, and the more that they realise that it's a complicated, but it's also perhaps an innovation. They're more likely to understand if and when something maybe not goes wrong, but isn't quite as ideal as might have been desired, than they are if it's just a black box to them, then they suddenly find you know, there's a problem with it. Why, why did you sort of voice this on us and so on? So it's a two-way, you know, a two-way benefit, I think. Yes. And we quite often talk about the black box. And so for listeners, I think we need to sort of expand on what, what we mean when we're talking about a black box. From my perspective, which is a more lay perspective, I, I suppose, um, the black box is where we say, well, we use this machine and then it gives us this result. Mm-hmm. We don't tell them how, we don't tell them why, and we don't tell them actually potentially what that result could do to impact on their treatment and their life in general. Do you have any different views on that black box, Jackie? A lot of stuff in medicine and medical devices and so on is a black box, sometimes actually physically, um, that you, you, you can't turn into a completely transparent one. I mean, the people who have developed it and are using it uh, will have had uh, upwards of two decades worth of education and training to get them to the point that they're developing it and using it, you're not going to be able to recreate that for patient or public in two and a half minutes of explanation. But you can turn it into a slightly greyish box, perhaps, in which people have get an impression, at least, of the limits of the thing that you're doing. Because I think that's important too, that people have a, a realistic sense that this is not this is not magic. 
we're not overhyping it either. Again, as I said, I think they're less likely to react very strongly negatively if they have a realistic sense of the pros and cons of this. I think if you're going to do it properly, then you need to have experts involved in that kind of communication, the production of materials that will, whether they're written or visual or whatever, that will inform patients and public. Um, I've worked with a lot of doctors and scientists in my time. And part of the work that I did years ago when I was first in regulatory affairs was actually in communications. So I became pretty aware of just how bad most of us scientists and doctors are at communicating with the general public and with patients. We just have no idea anymore about how how much or how little they understand of the jargon sometimes that we throw at them. And you know, there are people out there who have a lot more expertise who can help with that. Great, thank you. One of the things I quite often talk about is white noise, which I describe as a patient's reaction to getting a significant diagnosis, for example. Um, There comes a point where you're at that point of diagnosis and then you're told, oh, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that, and so on and so forth, which at that point you're not really in a position to take in because you're sitting there in shock being told that you could have a life-limiting disease or etc. with your diagnosis. Now, when we're looking at this patient and public involvement and engagement, I see it that what we're trying to do is engage with people without that white noise element. We're trying to engage with them at a point where they can make a rational decision and opinion about their views about a technology. But we use this phrase blithely, Uh, patient and public involvement and engagement but they are two different things involvement and engagement and two different things patient and public so how do you go about actually refining what you're doing to make sure we cover all aspects interesting complex question it's necessarily um, a step-by-step process I mean you have to sit down and think about who are the stakeholders, how much information they're going to have already, what their priorities are going to be. Uh, and their prior- that helps you, I think, determine what your priorities of information and informing and what form of engagement as well you might want to take part in or get them to take part in. It's always a balance between an ideal and the pragmatic realities of how much time you have and how much funding you have you know, to do this this exercise. Ideally, you'd adequately canvas everybody who's going to be involved in this. You'd hold things like, if it's a radical piece of technology, you'd hold things like citizens' juries to find out, you know, achieve a consensus on what kind of health policy you want wrapped around it and so on. You can't do that with every single innovation that is hopefully coming to market. So there's a a sort of skill in identifying what's going to be most useful to you to answer the questions that you need to have answered uh, in order to move forward with this. The the one message I think I would emphasise is that every single project I've been involved in like this that involved the public or patients, there's always a response from those uh, constituencies that is entirely unexpected and unpredicted ahead of time. And I think that's an essential message to take on board. You just have to know, unless you do this work, you will miss something important. And you might get away with it, uh, or you might not. Yes, 
Absolutely. Thinking uh, on a, a more straightforward basis, say we've got a medical device that is going to be used with patients, maybe an enhancement on an inhaler for people who have asthma, for an mm-hmm. example. When we talk about patients and public, patients are those with asthma, public are those without asthma. Is there anybody in particular that you would highlight as public or could that be anyone? In that particular example, you'll often find that, you know, family members of people with asthma, parents of children with asthma are going to be, even if they don't have it themselves, you know, they're going to be particularly engaged in in this one. And then they're kind of concentric rings out from that of people with more or less interest in it, motivation to get engaged. Again, that's often unpredictable. You can't tell what kind of people are going to have that motivation um, often ahead of time. We talk about, you know, hard to reach groups. You know, often you're going to have to quite consciously push yourself beyond the ones who immediately put their hands up to take part in this, who often have a particular demographic with the time and the capacity and the education and so on to feel comfortable doing this. But the majority of people out there who are going to be patients are not going to be people like that, probably. So it takes, again, some sort of thought and effort to reach those groups who just don't have necessarily have a tradition of um, engaging with this kind of activity, who might actually be those social groups that are particularly marginalised, particularly exposed to risk, particularly likely to need something like a better kind, a better kind of inhaler, uh, for example. Again, one thing to note there is there's an increasing tendency, which is entirely understandable, to do all of the engagement work online through online surveys uh, and through emailings out and and so on. And it is understandable because it's easy and it's effective and it's efficient, but it misses out large groups of people who don't have access to the online world or who are just not comfortable in it, which is often, you know, it's older people, but also people who may not have English as their first language, who may be sharing, you know, come from economically deprived areas, so they're sharing equipment or their only access to a computer is in the library, that kind of thing. It's important to try to think of at least a few imaginative ways of accessing those groups as well. Thank you. And and thinking about the involvement side of things, when we're talking about involvement, anyone on who's listening to this podcast that is currently developing technology will know that this goes through multiple iterations. And um, during that iterative process, what you've got is you've got a piece of technology that you think is great. Then you hand it over to the person with asthma and say, now have a go. And they go, I've got arthritic fingers, I can't press this button. Mm-hmm. I, I'm left-handed, this doesn't work for me. Um, how do I use it in the middle of the night where I can't see what I'm doing? And so on and so forth, which goes back to Jackie's point of doing it in person is really a practical thing to do, particularly on the involvement point of things. Because as far as involvement is concerned, the patient contribution can be really significant in how you develop your product to make sure that it actually fits with the needs of the, of the patient. And you've thought about those things. you thought about the practicalities of what it's like to be that patient on a day-to-day basis. Does the inhaler fit in their pocket? Is it uncomfortable having it in your jeans when you're walking about? And so on and so forth. Lots of things that you might not have thought about 
as an inventor with a bench. We're coming towards the end of our time here. So, Jackie, is there anything else that you'd like to tell the listeners or impart before we close? I suppose I'd like to emphasise that um, I think this is becoming, this involvement of end users of different kinds or potential end users in development processes of research and development, that's becoming the norm. And in the eyes of some funders, at least, certainly research funders, it's becoming the gold standard. Um, in the institute where I work in Australia um, that I that I direct, we are developing, in a sense, going a little bit further of inclusive research and co-production of research, which is, again, a very trendy and um, popular terms at the moment of, of involving people with disabilities, but also people with chronic illnesses and various medical conditions in the, not just the development of a new intervention, but in the problem setting at the outset, you know, trying to identify what is actually the problem, which may not be the one that someone from the outside thinks is the problem. This kind of process is, I think, extraordinarily valuable and it's difficult to do well and to do adequately. So you need, I think, guidance and training uh, in it. It's also, at the moment at least, sometimes difficult to persuade at least some kinds of funders that you need that extra time and you need the extra money that you're going to need to go through this process. But the end results, the output and the outcome, I think, is infinitely better because you're far less likely to come out with you know, an, a nice toy that that is looks really good, sounds really good, and that nobody wants to use. <laughs> That's fantastic. I think uh, this has been a recurring theme throughout these podcasts. Just because you think it's a problem doesn't mean that the medical community or the patients think it's a problem. So again, we need to make sure that we're really dealing with a problem and not just something that you think is a great idea. So thank you again, Jackie. It's been great to speak to you. This is Kate Pym signing off. If you want to find out more and listen to more podcasts, you can find these on www.pimsconsultancy.co.uk. If you want to reach out to Jackie, I would suggest you contact us through the agency and we can get in touch with her. Thanks very much and speak to you soon. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you found it both interesting and useful. Please feel free to message us if you've got any questions that you'd like to ask or any requests for future interviewees or any particular aspects of MedTech that you'd like to know more about. We'd be happy to include them in future episodes. Our email address is info at pimsconsultancy.co.uk. That's info at Papa Yankee Mike Sierra consultancy.co.uk or you can find out more about this podcast by visiting pimsconsultancy.co.uk forward slash medtech podcast until the next time bye for now